Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With the WWE SummerSlam Fallout Edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again. And today, we will not only be taking a second look at SummerSlam, but breaking down everything left over from SmackDown and the entirety of Raw as we cover the entire week in the world of WWE. We will also have a look, some WWE headlines, and a ton more in this absolutely loaded edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. But what we will not do this week is revisit one year of WWE booking under Triple H. Why? Because unfortunately, vintage Chris Vanini was unable to make today's show, and that is definitely a discussion that needs to be had between both of us. So we will talk about Triple H having the book for a calendar year next week, but this week we will cover the SummerSlam second look, a bunch of individual WWE headlines, and of course, SmackDown and Raw. We also have a number of DMs and tweets from you that we will answer and discuss on this show. I did ask on Twitter, at Getting Overcast, our account, for you guys to send in your good, bad, and ugly thoughts. A couple of you did, but you didn't exactly follow instructions, so we're unable to use that here. Nevertheless, we will make sure we get as many of you in this show as possible. Now, we do have an entry from Chris that we will get to momentarily. Before we get to that, before we get to the rest of the show, allow me to kick things off as we always do here at Getting Over with a reminder that this podcast is all about defy so please folks stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me go back to being marks for the silver king adam silverstein vintage chris vanini and the getting over wrestling podcast please head over to apple podcasts and spotify leave those five star ratings on apple take a little extra time leave a five star written review if you do we will read it live right here on the show also as mentioned don't forget to follow us on twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You also get to vote in our pre- and post-show polls surrounding premium live events and pay-per-views. And for anyone who listened to our WWE SummerSlam instant analysis episode, you heard exactly how those contributions are utilized on the show. On that note, if you have not listened to the WWE SummerSlam instant analysis episode that is in the podcast feed exactly where you are listening to this show right now. So you may want to pause, listen to that first, and then come back here. Also, though, please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for just five bucks a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. You visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you get news posts every week, bonus audio, anywhere between two and four times a week. I'm going to try to go back to doing four. We had some scheduling issues that prevented that, but bonus audio news posts, and perhaps more important than both of those, you get to directly support the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And on that note, I do want to give a shout out to Will Cunningham for being our newest official Getting Overhead And he didn't really write a long message like many of you have. He just had one word. Yeah. So, Will, thank you very much for joining up. We acknowledge you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. 
Now, with that all in, let's get to the start of the show. As mentioned, we're going to kick things off with a WWE SummerSlam second look. We are also going to go over some headlines in the world of WWE. Then the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the last word. That's a five-segment show. We have never done that before here on the podcast, but we are bringing it to you today. So let's kick things off with Chris, because I have plenty to say, uh, and Chris does not have as much. He has about two and a half minutes worth of audio that he sent in. So we're going to play Chris's thoughts on SummerSlam, then I'm going to dive into mine, and we're going to get the show on the road. So Vintage, take it away. Vintage Chris Vanini here calling in from Canada. I did not catch Raw, but I was able to watch SummerSlam on Peacock after not seeing it in person. Here are some of my rewatch slash first watch thoughts. I really liked Logan Ricochet in person, but I liked it even more on the broadcast, actually. Great energy. Love the Logan Paul taunting of Samantha Irvin uh, at the end. That was some pretty great healing. I feel bad for how much we shit on Ronda Shayna after seeing what Shayna looked like on Monday. I saw a couple of pictures of it. I didn't notice some of the shots that each of them took at the time, probably because doing an MMA fight in a football stadium makes for very bad visuals. The match was a little better on the broadcast when you could see those hits and the replays helped, but still pretty rough. I didn't know WWE did a battle royal video during AJ Styles entrance Uh, that was actually pretty cool made it feel like a big deal along with the participants that were in it the pop for LA Knight on the win sounded like the biggest pop of the night Uh, pretty clear they know what they have with LA Knight they hyped him up a lot during that but Michael Cole do not try to make yeah movement a thing do not do that that is going to turn some people against this whole thing Seth versus Finn, the finish played out a lot quicker on the broadcast and it played in my head thinking back after being uh, being there. Still sad that Finn didn't win, but I loved the Damian Priest reaction to the pin, the frustration when he's just kind of blankly staring at Seth. Uh, so many wrestlers in that spot throw their hands up in the air or look down or do something. That was such a great moment, the way Damian Priest reacted to that. I love Seth staring back at him. Roman J, the main event, not really any better on a Peacock watch than having been there. That The one supposed hope spot for Jay where he gets pulled out by Jimmy, there was no crowd reaction kind of on the pin before Jimmy pulled him out. Uh, still very disappointed by that match. It started slow, barely hit a second gear. I just don't get why it dragged on so long if it was never going to speed up at the end. Overall, still a pretty good show. I'm sticking with my B-plus grade. A better main event gets it into the A range, but uh, those are my thoughts on the SummerSlam rewatch slash first watch. All right, so obviously Chris had a unique perspective being there at SummerSlam, Ford Field in Detroit, and then coming home and watching it on Peacock, seeing things from a different vantage point. For yours truly, I of course wasn't there, so I just rewatched the show a second time. Now granted, I did fast forward through a couple things I wasn't going to sit through a second four and a half hour show. But I do have a number of thoughts based on what I saw watching SummerSlam, and we're going to get through these as quick as I possibly can. Now, we're going to discuss Tribal Combat and the fan reception to SummerSlam as a whole. We're going to save that for last. Before we get to that, some other thoughts. I'm still kind of flabbergasted that people didn't like the start of Cody Rhodes' Brock Lesnar, whereas the opening of Bloodline Civil War at Money in the Bank was indeed boring because they were literally just wrestling and wasting time. 
The lack of action here was purposeful to build the match story. It was anything but boring to me. Pure David versus Goliath. They played um, into each of their first two matches, led to massive pops for Cody every time he started to rally. And once they fully got into the wrestling aspect, it was nonstop. If they didn't do the opening part, the match would have been just like any other Lesnar match. Five, seven, eight minutes of hot action and a finish. Now that said, I will admit my grade was a little bit too high, so I'm going down to four stars and an A-. minus. I gave the story a bit too much credit initially, but I still thought it was excellent. And the spot with the steel steps, that remains ridiculous. It's just not legal. There's no way that you can make that legal because it wasn't. It was a regular match. Now, Triple H claimed in the press conference that the post-match with Lesnar wasn't planned. I don't know, man. Maybe it wasn't planned to that extent, but that was definitely extensive to not be part of the plan. And Michael Cole on Raw Monday night even pointed out that Lesnar has never put over someone like that in his entire combat sports career. It was a great establishment moment for Cody because now he can be seen as legitimately tough. And as I said on the instant analysis, it actually put a nice pin in their half of the storyline with Rhodes earning Lesnar's respect. Moving on, the LA night pops were legitimately ridiculous. And I say that in a good way. I said it on the instant analysis, but the pop at the end, it was exactly like he won the Royal Rumble. That's wild. And it helps too that his theme really bangs and it has that robotic voice at the beginning that kind of serves as the glass break indicator, you know, the Steve Austin equivalent. So him having that kind of entrance and getting the kind of reception he does, it all plays together really well. Seth Rollins versus Finn Balor, it really was outstanding. Other than the winner, I thought the match was flawless. It could never be an A plus with that much interference, but I'm actually upping my grade here to put 4.5 stars and an A. Not only was the wrestling fantastic, the storytelling was totally on point. I mentioned in our recap that Balor wanted to stick with plan A when he was yelling at Priest. What I missed is that Priest throwing the briefcase in the ring at the end after his punch and the other interference was not part of plan A. And Balor showed he didn't want it, but crawled over anyway out of necessity. I still disagree with the winner immensely, as I've said, but it really didn't detract from the match. And even though the fans were ready for Balor to win, they were perfectly happy to cheer Rollins when he finished on top. Now, Big Blaine at Big Blaine 71 wrote in with Finn Balor just losing again. I have a question between him and AJ being their ages, which has a better chance of being a world champion in WWE? It's actually crazy to say, but the answer is still Balor. Like Styles, I could see maybe as a United States champion, but his days at the tippy top are done. Balor, it feels like it's never going to happen, but he's four years younger and he has not mentioned at all hanging it up or stopping wrestling while Styles has suggested he might be on his last contract. So the answer to that question, Blaine, is Balor. Uh, the women's match is another one where I was surprised, again, to hear as much displeasure with the work. Yes, Charlotte Flair had two consecutive botches early, but once those were gone, this thing rocked. I truly believe people were bored by Ronda Rousey, Shayna Baszler, and angry at Balor not winning, and they let that emotion carry over here. The 450 from Bel Air was one of the best single spots I have ever seen in a women's match, period. Absolutely crazy stuff there. It kind of got lost in the moment, but Asuka's miss to Charlotte's face upside down was also really sick, and obviously Eoskai's 
cash in. We've already gone over that. Perfectly executed exactly how the money in the bank briefcase should be used, especially by a heel. And man, I had such a smile on my face watching this back with Bailey and Dakota Kai and Michael Cole's call. Fantastic moment. One note is that Belair sold the wrong knee initially when she got injured. She sold the right, but the left should have been the one that she was working, as is wrestling tradition. She limped on the left later, and EO took the left out with the briefcase. Not huge in the grand scheme, but definitely a mistake. I loved that we got a true triple threat main event. I mentioned this before with the three matches that were actually the most important because they had titles on the line, ending the show in order. I've long talked about building wrestling cards like real combat sports, and this was exactly what I was talking about. No popcorn match, no bullshit, just the three biggest matches, one, two, three. Okay, now let's talk about tribal combat and SummerSlam as a whole. First on tribal combat. I said this Saturday night, but for me, the biggest issue with this match by far, it was not the time or Jimmy Uso. It was Solo Sokoa. And to counter some shit I saw online, they never explicitly stated that it was a no interference match. You can't even legislate that when it's anything goes. One of the big topics Monday on the IWC was literally a screenshot from Google, where WWE's website folks wrote in a match description on July 21st. Remember, we're taping the show now. It's August 8th, but on July 21st, that quote unquote, no one can interfere in tribal combat. Fans are using this as a means of like shitting on WWE for changing the rules of the match. Well, I hate to break it to you all. That was never said on television. And historically, the WWE website writes a lot of shit that has been inaccurate compared to actual TV storylines. The storyline is what happens in front of 2.5 million people per week on SmackDown and even more after the fact on YouTube or whoever watch it. Not what is written in a blurb on WWE's website seen by 10,000 people. There was an insinuation on TV when Reigns held up Sokoa's arm in that rules of engagement segment. It was insinuated there, but it was never, never explicitly stated. And they had two weeks after that to clarify the rules of the match, but only came up with anything goes. The tribal combat match failed for many, many reasons, as we've already stated. And Sokoa's interference for me was the biggest, but it was not because it went against the rules. It was just absolutely ridiculous. Now, I'm not going to get into great detail like on the instant analysis, but if you remove Sokoa's interference, the entire match gets way better. The better story that should have been told was Jay taking Roman all the way to the limit and Jimmy being the lone difference maker, which would have sold Roman's surprise even more. Jay loses, you kick off Jay, Jimmy, and the loss is 100% on Jimmy, not Jimmy and Solo. That confused everything. So again, what I'm saying is, even though they never said it was no interference, it ideally should have been. Beyond that, as I said, the match just did not live up to expectations. It was way too long. The two-on-one aspect, as mentioned, was absurd. The wrestling wasn't good enough. It didn't feel unique from any other no disqualification match. There was nothing Samoan about it. And Jimmy's interference, all the extreme amounts of interference, it was so repetitive and eye-rolling on top of all of that. If the presentation of the match had been better leading into it, you could be annoyed by one element and let it go. The problem was it was one thing after another that ruined the enjoyment of the match. I also find it interesting 
how some have put the blame on Triple H for this when we've stated for years now, this is Paul Heyman and Roman Reigns leading this storyline. Now, yes, Triple H and Vince McMahon obviously have approval of what gets on TV, but you have to give the praise and criticism to the same people. You don't get to differentiate who you praise when you like something and who you blame when you do not. And lastly, look, shit happens. For me, this was the first time in three years where there was a part of the bloodline story that I actively disliked. Previously, there were parts that I would have done differently or elements I'd have added or changed, but this was the first time start to finish I was bothered by a booking. The fact that for me, they've batted 1,000 until this point, or maybe you want to say like they batted 800, whatever the case. Again, I'm not saying everything before it was perfect, but nothing was truly objectionable. The fact that it was so strong until now is a testament to the quality of the storyline leading up to this point. I think as long as Jimmy does not rejoin the bloodline, I can wind up stomaching this and moving past the shit SummerSlam booking. There was promotion on Raw for a Hail to the Chief segment this Saturday where Jimmy will acknowledge Roman again. I'm pretty confident that's a swerve. If Jimmy clarifies, like, yeah, I got an issue with my brother and we're gonna deal with it, but hey, Roman, you can still go fuck yourself, that's gonna be far more palatable than him just going back for no reason whatsoever. Let me read a DM from Asa March at Asa March one He said, I agree Jump the Shark is a bit overstated, but all the twists and turns up to now have made narrative emotional logical sense, whereas this turn by Jimmy seems to have been done just to facilitate the Uso versus Uso feud. It makes zero sense at all for Jimmy to turn so quickly after being put in the hospital. If this happened over a three-month period, you could justify it but this was not authentic to the storyline at all. My biggest worry is the storyline will continue to devolve into standard wrestling cliche. Agree that we should wait and see what happens with Jimmy's explanation, but it was a really weak development. Now, I think the second part of what you said, Aza, is key. Jump the shark refers to a singular moment that kicks off a trend. So let's look at like NWO and Game of Thrones. Those are two great examples. It was not one thing that went wrong, but a jumping off point for everything else going wrong after that. For example, the finger poke of doom with the NWO that began a consistent string of bad storytelling that deviated from the quality that existed previously. If the bloodline story continues to devolve and get worse and worse, then yes, you can look back and say, this was the jump the shark moment. But saying it now, especially saying it in the moment, is putting the cart way, way, way before the horse. I agree that this kind of happened too fast with Jimmy. I disagree that it makes no logical sense when we literally explained the logic on the ultimate preview. We told you if Jimmy was going to turn, here is why and how that would happen. And that is what they did. People need to remember, it's okay not to like something and say you didn't like it and leave it at that. I'm not talking to you, Oz. I'm talking to anyone. I didn't like this. I would say most didn't like it. That does not mean the entire storyline jumped the shark. And it does not mean that the three years of booking that preceded it are suddenly trash, nor does it mean that whatever booking is to come cannot be outstanding. It's just that this allowed people who are tired with the storyline or looking for an opening to criticize it. It allowed tribal fans also to shit on WWE fans for liking it for the three years prior, and it let people online do what they do best which is hate, because granted, it was not good. 
Another DM from Aaron at Lions Heat Yanks. Is this going to be another rope breaks on the demon moment where they never explain the interferences and there's no consequences for Roman, Jimmy, and Solo? Are these moments starting to tarnish the title reign? Lastly, do you guys think they're building to the end of the bloodline story with a bloodline fatal four-way? No, I, I do believe they're going to explain Jimmy's motivation in detail this Friday. How well that is received remains to be seen. I don't think this moment tarnishes the title reign, but as I said Saturday on the instant analysis, Roman's lack of defenses between WrestleMania and this upcoming Royal Rumble, coupled with the immense interference that he has now needed to retain it over the last year in particular, it has turned him from a dominant champion into a guy who has just held the title for a really long time. So that is problematic. And lastly, yes, I could definitely see a bloodline fatal four-way, maybe at Survivor Series or Royal Rumble being the plan. Perhaps the reaction has them rethinking that. If it's just Roman versus Jimmy and then Roman versus Solo, or one of those, and then they get to the fatal four-way, it's probably gonna get boring with him just going one, going from one Uso to the other Uso, whereas all these other people on SmackDown are not getting title shots. That's something they need to figure out. And one last DM, Devin Robinson at GTS Robin. Hope you guys spend a few minutes discussing the online reaction to SummerSlam. Some of the takes about the show in general and the Bloodline story specifically have been more over the top than usual. I've seen multiple comparisons to WCW today. Do you have a theory on why the reaction is so negative towards a B plus PLE? Love the podcast. Thank you for that. And of course, thank you for the question. And thanks to everyone for these questions. I absolutely have a theory here. Two, actually. One, I would say, is more of a theory. The other is the reality of what happened Saturday. So first, the theory. Wrestling fans historically, not just now, but forever, they love building something up and then tearing it down. Ironic that this is literally one year with Triple H having the book, and suddenly in a span of a week, he's a terrible creative lead who gets everything wrong. This despite WWE selling out arena after arena, setting merchandise records, ratings going up, Raw being pretty awesome. But this happens with everything. It happened with Hangman Adam Page. It happened with Seth Rollins the last time he won the title. And it's happening a bit again with Rollins on this title reign because people are mad about Balor. It happened with AEW where they could do no wrong for two and a half to three years. Then Triple H gets the book in WWE and now it's okay to shit on and criticize AEW. Wrestling fans love giving something a honeymoon period and being all about it and then just ripping the tablecloth out from underneath and saying, oh, you guys all like this? Well, I hate it and I've always hated it and here's why I hate it. So I do believe that is playing into this. Uh, WWE has been getting so much praise for the last year and now it's like, oh, something didn't go perfect. Now we have an opening to truly shit on it. Now the reality. So that was the theory. Here's the reality. I think it's clear there were multiple missteps at SummerSlam, and they all seem to happen in succession over the second half of the show. It started with the Ronda Rousey-Shayna Baszler match. Both the match itself and the stipulation were a bad decision. It killed the show's momentum, which was really hot until that moment, and internet fans in particular were already upset that it was on the show instead of Becky Lynch, Trish Stratus, even though, again, it was not one or the other. That was followed by fans wanting Balor to win only for Rollins to win, ignoring that the match was outstanding because they didn't get what they wanted in the end. Then the women's match started rough. Even though it ended strong, that was quickly followed by Tribal Combat not delivering at all. So if you take out the MMA rules match and you give Balor the title, I think the reception of this show is extremely strong. I think everyone's shitting on the Tribal Combat, 
but they're praising SummerSlam. And again, you can have a pay-per-view or a premium live event where there's one truly bad match. But I think MMA rules and tribal combat being two of the last four matches and Balor not winning and the women starting weak, the culmination of all of that, a lot of things that internet fans didn't want, that led to some distaste at the end of the show. So if you couple the build-up, tear-down stuff that I mentioned, the theory, with the legitimate booking mistakes or things that rub people the wrong way, that explains the reaction to the show. And I think it's fair to point out both because they're each factors, but I rewatched the show in its entirety. I completely stand by my B-plus grade, and Chris, as you just heard, does as well. The listeners, there were hundreds of you who voted and averaged out to a B plus. So I think we're on the right track in terms of legitimately grading SummerSlam. Now, before we move off of SummerSlam, there were a couple interesting things that happened during Triple H's press conference at the end of the show. And I actually cut clips for them. So let's listen to both of them. Uh, and then I'll give you some analysis and thoughts. First, here is Triple H being asked about you know, certain women perhaps not appearing on the show. Becky and Trish were not mentioned, but the question was clearly pointed in that direction. This was his answer. And, you know, like there, there was a lot of, of uh, banter that I saw uh, this week about matches being cut, right? Which is the word that was used, but nothing was cut. There was no card announced, right? If, if we don't have more things in the pocket ready to go, for a PLE than can fit in the PLE, I've done a terrible job because there's always an injury waiting around the corner. There's always a moment that changes everything. And when one creative thing changes, it changes the trajectory of everything, right? So if you don't have more stuff than you need ready to go, you failed. Then you get to the unfortunate place where you and I have got too much stuff. I don't know about any of you, that show was plenty long tonight. Plenty long, right? Um, if it had been longer, it would have been bad. And so there comes a time when you say, well, does everything get shorter time? Does everything get rushed? Does everything get harried? Or do we move things around and shift it and give it a bigger spotlight? As a performer for me, I'd rather have the bigger spotlight. Now, Triple H also pointed out that WWE clearly has enough talent to do two nights of WrestleMania. So then when it comes down to doing one night of SummerSlam, obviously not everyone who's a top name can be on the show. Now, it's a reasonable take and point by Triple H to some degree. No, Becky Lynch versus Trish Stratus was not announced. Yes, the show was plenty long, but the main event was probably 12 minutes longer than it needed to be by any metric. I know it's the top story, but it was truly unnecessary for it to be that long for a second show in a row. You cut those 12 minutes, you add three more to the overall length, and you only do two instead of the four entrances for the Battle Royal, and all of a sudden... Becky and Trish are on the show getting a 15-minute match without it going much longer. Even better would have been to book Becky and Trish on the show instead of Gunther and Drew McIntyre, which was the one match that could have easily been on a Raw as a big-time main event and probably an even bigger ratings grabber than Trish and Becky would be. I'm just kind of being honest. I don't believe for a second, though, it was a men versus women thing. I just think it was a bad decision. So now let's move on to the question that vintage Chris Vanini asked at this press conference, which was about Finn Balor. And it was actually the last question that Triple H answered. Yeah, Paula, Chris Vanini from The Athletic and the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Uh, Finn Balor, uh, seven years coming back to here. He's had a couple of title shots, hasn't gotten over the hump. Where do you see where he is at right now? I see Finn Balor as um, 
being in probably the second most successful sort of grouping outside of the bloodline right now. Um, pretty dominant on Raw. Uh, you know, to, to me now, it's, um, I don't know, there seemed to be a little bit of a riff there with him and Damien. Where does that go? It's, it's always this very interesting to me um, where those character traits take people. You know, the interesting thing with the bloodline different from Judgment Day, bloodline has a very distinct leader. Judgment Day sort of doesn't. You can make the argument it's Rhea. You can make the argument it's Damien. You can make the argument it's Finn. I don't think anybody will make the argument it's Dominic. <laughs> but he's an important cog in that wheel. And like, look, um, but it's, to me, that's the thing. Where does Finn go from here? I don't know. That's what I want to find out, right? And that's, to me, that's the point of all this. What's next, right? And when we get to the place where you're asking what's next, I think that's the best place to be. I do love that last line there because we talk about that all the time on the podcast, right? If any storyline leaves us wanting more and wondering what is coming next, that is basically a definition of something, being successful. Now, first of all, Chris should have said he's from getting over, and The Athletic, not the other way around, but I digress. I didn't love Triple H's answer here, though, overall. Chris probably was trying not to ask too pointed of a question, but clearly he was asking about Balor as a main eventer and a future champion, not whether he's featured on Raw. We know he's a huge part of Judgment Day. That really didn't need to be repeated. Triple H was decently combative in the press conference overall, more so than usual when he's just kind of sarcastic. I think he just felt the criticism coming in about Becky and Trish, and I presume he wasn't thrilled with the re reaction to the main event. But, you know, look, they're doing the press conferences now. I thought the questions that Triple H got asked here were better than they usually are. And, of course, Chris being involved in that was great for the show. So great for Chris. Uh, Triple H, solid that he did it, but kind of wish the answers were a little bit more realistic based on what fans wanted to know and media wanted to know in that moment. So let's wrap up with SummerSlam. Let's move on to these big WWE headlines that I teased earlier. First, uh, Big E stated in an interview leading into SummerSlam that a doctor advised him never to wrestle again. First of all, what's most important is Big E's health. Let's make that very clear. And if he never wrestles again, so be it. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is doctors tell wrestlers all the time never to wrestle because it's straight up dangerous. He said he feels great, he has no nerve damage, he's regained all of his strength, he didn't rule out wrestling, but he also didn't say he had any specific plans for a return. And he does have options. Color commentary, as an example for him, is a no-brainer. Obviously, community outreach and some of the stuff that Titus O'Neil does as a global ambassador. Biggie can be utilized by WWE. On that note, before I move on, Kevin Owens has spoken recently about not being sure what he's gonna do when his contract ends. He basically said, hey, I'm gonna continue with WWE. Just wasn't sure in what capacity he would remain with the company. There is no one in WWE right now who would be better as a permanent commentary fixture than Kevin Owens. I'd put him in the Jerry the King Lawler role of commentator who once or twice a year gets involved in a feud. That way KO can scratch the wrestling itch and wrestle, but still have a full-time job and be on TV and entertain us. Back to Big E though, if I had to guess, it's a matter of not if, but when. And I could see the Royal Rumble as the when. Let me clarify, I have no insight here whatsoever. But if he's truly 100% healthy, 
He's only 37. He could tone down his moveset. Maybe don't do the Tope Spear ever again. Uh, perhaps stay in tag team situations with New Day and probably have another good five years in the ring. So that's Big E. Uh, Vince McMahon, these are all injury related, by the way. Vince McMahon underwent a five-hour spine surgery at age 77, mind you. That's even more serious than spine surgery on its own already is for a younger person. I know fans are immediately wondering about contributions to creative. Triple H reiterated after SummerSlam that he would look to Vince for counsel and help with creative, but he was not in it all the time and he was not involved day to day. Now, it's curious that J.D. McDonough popped up for the first time in a while at and after SummerSlam and the seeds of the way were being planted again on Raw. I personally believe these were Triple H changing creative plans and pushing these storylines until after SummerSlam. It's certainly possible, though, that they were shelved and now he's bringing them back, maybe with less oversight of his creative. Either way, yes, there's phones and computers that work and Vince is a maniac when it comes to business. I have to believe he's not going to be involved at all for a significant period of time. That kind of spine surgery at age 77, some doctors won't even perform it. So really crazy stuff here. And lastly, Sonia Deville has torn her ACL, which basically means the women's tag team championships will need to be relinquished. Sources did confirm to getting over that Deville had torn her ACL. This was after it was first reported by TMZ. And WWE went ahead and cited TMZ on television, sure made it seem like they leaked the injury news to them on purpose for publicity, which is interesting. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but let's first hear from Sonya Deville. So um, obviously the tag team titles are cursed. I'm just kidding, but like not really. Yeah, uh, these titles are indeed cursed. They were poorly managed for a long time. And then once Sasha Banks and Naomi walked out of Raw, Ever since then, yeah, they're legitimately cursed. One injury after another, changing teams, changing plans, forcing the titles to be relinquished, delaying storylines. It's fucking endless right now. Now, look, Carmella obviously didn't get injured. Luckily and fortunately for her, she got pregnant. That's great. But she wasn't a champion at that point, And she was just part of a planned team. I still think the women's tag team titles are a better idea than a mid-card title. But at some point, you have to give consideration to what's happening, because how much longer is this shit going to go on? It is honestly insane. It's literally one injury after another. Now, I thought we were going to get more definitive information going forward on Raw, but they never announced beforehand that they were going to have stuff on it. And they did mention it at the end of the show, but they get again, they didn't tell us what's happening next. Hopefully we get more clarity about the women's tag team titles on SmackDown in terms of how new champions will be crowned. At first blush, Unholy Union winning them back to me makes a lot of sense. They're a heel team. There's a couple other babyface teams. You can talk about Candice LeRae and Indy Hartwell, Caden Carter and Katana Chance. They're already established to different degrees. And again, the way to do the women's tag team division is to have women pair up with friends so they can operate both as singles and teams whenever necessary. And there are plenty of women on these rosters that can be utilized. By the way, again, I'm going to mention this. Where the hell is Piper Niven? Like, And where are some of these women that could be utilized on TV more frequently? Here's the opportunity, okay? You have Liv Morgan out, That although she was more focused on a single storyline, but you have Liv Morgan out. You have Carmella out with pregnancy. You have Sonya Deville out. Uh, Ronda Rousey's gone, and Shayna Baszler is now operating in the singles division. So 
these teams have disappeared, but not due to WWE breaking them up, literally injury and health and, and wellness reasons, all these types of things. So here is your chance to truly reshape this division. You could even call up potentially Ulisa Leone and Valentina Ferois from NXT. That would be a great option on the main roster. There's a lot of things they can do, and I hope they get to it. But there is no doubt right now that the women's tag team championships are cursed. And now that I think about it, this is what they should do. Unholy Union wins the titles. And they hold like, I don't know what it would be called, but like a witch ceremony, a seance, you know, whatever. And they literally uncurse the titles on TV and then roll with that going forward. I think it'd be a fun tongue in cheek moment. Obviously, Alba Fire and Isla Dawn have been off TV since they lost to Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler. So you get them on TV, you give them the titles, establish them as great women's tag team, let them have a long reign with them. And maybe, yeah, uncurse the titles live on TV. That would be pretty damn cool. Lastly, before we move on, there were some changes made to WWE's commentary team. Michael Cole and Wade Barrett stayed together. However, they have moved from SmackDown over to Raw on Monday nights. Obviously an extremely interesting move, putting Barrett on Raw Monday. I wonder if that was a scheduling request for him or perhaps something else. But getting Michael Cole on what has, at least from an entertainment standpoint, become the A show and obviously the longer show, that's a huge plus. And of course, getting Kevin Patrick off of that show as the play-by-play man, that's addition by subtraction. Now that said, the SmackDown commentary team also changed. Michael Cole will be playing double duty. He will be the lead voice for both shows with not only Corey Graves joining him for color commentary, but Kevin Patrick filling in that in-between role on the blue brand. That is obviously an extremely interesting decision. Now, the idea of Patrick learning next to Cole and filling in both the commentary and the play-by-play gaps in a three-man booth, that might possibly work. Clearly, WWE believes in this guy. I do think he has some legitimate talent, and he seems like a really nice person. It's just that play-by-play for wrestling does not really seem to be his bag. But before you give up on someone, giving them an opportunity to prove themselves and, and improve directly in front of you, that is what good managers do. And Michael Cole is the manager of this division. He's probably a vice president. I'm just saying he's the one in charge. So clearly Cole is going to give this guy another chance working alongside him, whether it works, whether it does not, who knows. But it is very interesting to see that Graves and Patrick develop some chemistry adding Cole in to kind of lead the charge and have Patrick and Graves play off of him, it's going to be interesting. I would love to speak to Michael Cole and get his thoughts on working two days a week now, coming down from one. I don't know if he normally traveled to Raw because he does have an executive position where he has responsibilities beyond being on air. So if he already was traveling to Raw on Mondays, then I guess it doesn't matter much. It's just him talking for three additional hours, which is natural to a guy who's been doing this for decades now. But if he was not normally traveling on Mondays, going back to that schedule, that's got to be taxing. And I can't imagine he's overly thrilled with that personally. But again, he may have been the one who made the decision. It might have come from USA Network hearing criticisms. Uh, Maybe this is temporary and WWE finds another play-by-play guy to do Raw or SmackDown. It'll be interesting to see what happens here going forward. But I will say for Raw on Monday night, it was a breath of fresh air. Not only was it a great show, which we'll talk about momentarily, but having Cole and Wade Barrett on commentary was huge. It really improved the presentation of Raw. On that note, let's talk some fresh professional 
wrestling. So first, some thoughts coming out of SmackDown on Friday. The first 45 minutes of the show built to the least consequential match on SummerSlam, the Battle Royal. Then you had Jey Uso versus Solo Sokoa scheduled. This was announced on Bleacher Report, of all places. You know, the website owned by the same company that airs AEW. And then beyond that, it made zero sense in kayfabe for Jay to want to fight his brother 24 hours before the biggest match of his career. I know I said that on the SummerSlam Instant Analysis, but that's how much it bothered me. So suffice to say, not a fan of SmackDown on Friday. On Monday, look, it is so much more fun to praise great crowds than to shit on bad ones. Minneapolis on Monday night for Raw was incredible. One of the best television crowds of the entire year. It was a strong show, so they had plenty of reason to be hot, but they were actually beyond hot. They were on fire. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. So I wanted to acknowledge them. And Raw also, it was kind of back to its normal greatness once again. Huge bounce back show coming out of a controversial SummerSlam. Better than SmackDown, clearly. A lot developed. So look, I was happy about Raw. Not as happy about SmackDown. Doesn't mean SmackDown was bad necessarily. Let's get into everything that happened this week in the world of WWE that we did not already cover on the SummerSlam Instant Analysis. We're going to kick things off as we always do on this program by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. So Cody Rhodes opened Raw in Minneapolis talking about Brock Lesnar, apropos. He said he survived and conquered Lesnar, but never could have imagined earning his respect. He said his mom pointed out that Lesnar acknowledged him, and he said he now feels like he can beat anyone. That, of course, led Seth Rollins out, wanting to test that theory. Judgment Day without Finn Balor interrupted, with Damian Priest saying they'll all dictate the championship picture on Raw, but especially him because he has the Money in the Bank briefcase. Priest then put over Dominic Mysterio for being a workhorse champion. Balor suddenly attacked Rollins from behind, and Sami Zayn made the save, setting up an obvious six-man tag team main event. Rhodes impressively hit a Cody Cutter in his suit. As part of this, that was the standout from the opening segment. The faces later argued backstage, with Rollins staring down Rhodes, saying he has no desire to be on a team with him. Zayn got them together, saying they can stand together and deal with Judgment Day once and for all. They can use their friendship with Kevin Owens as a factor to get them on the same page, or they can let Judgment Day run all over them in Raw. Seth ultimately gave in and was cool with it. Now, the opening segment, for me, was extremely formulaic. Another Rollins-Rhodes tease that won't result in a title feud, and a similar main event to what we've gotten most of the last two months. First, it was Sammy and Kevin Owens with Cody against Judgment Day. Then it was them with Seth against Judgment Day. And now it's a combination with KO injured. This is one of those examples of Triple H coming from the Vince McMahon school of booking. You know, Triple H may be a better creative lead than Vince is, but he still learned under Vince McMahon's tree. Let's not forget that. This was the standard every week during the Attitude Era. However, it was the sixth hottest guys on the show, and the backstage segment gave it an additional necessary layer of intrigue that allowed me to be excited for the match, whereas otherwise, I would have rolled my eyes at it being the same thing in a different week. Seth and Cody still absolutely loathing each other, despite both of them being babyfaces, that tracks with their characters and coming together over KO. I thought that was a fun 
point on which the entire thing could kind of rotate, the fulcrum. Balor later was speaking with J.D. McDonough when Priest walked up saying they needed to talk alone because it was Judgment Day business. Balor said, dude, I've known J.D. for 20 years. Anything you want to say to me, you can say in front of him. So Priest complained about Balor not entering with them at the start of Raw and then attacking Rollins without a plan. Balor said he made his own plan because Priest didn't stick to the plan at SummerSlam. We talked about that earlier. Priest said he came out solely to help Balor at SummerSlam. And even with his help, Finn still lost. Balor obviously took offense to that. He blamed Priest for the loss, and Priest got angry that they were getting in each other's face. So Rhea Ripley gets between them and tells them, stop acting like children, act like men. Ripley told Balor they were all there to help him on SummerSlam. It didn't work. Shit happens. They got to get on the same page. So the guys eventually nodded, acknowledged each other in Spanish. McDonough then said the briefcase is coming between them, and Priest should get rid of it. Balor gave like a face, like a smirk, kind of like acknowledging that was true. He walked off and Priest was pissed. Even later, McDonough attacked Zayn out of nowhere, presumably in the moment, eliminating him from the match. And I swear, I was sitting through the first half of Raw wondering why the hell has there not been any development with Judgment Day? And then boom, they hit us with this. Exactly what it needed to be. The idea of JD, a longtime friend, like whispering in Finn's ear while he's not getting along with Damien, all while Rhea is playing Peacemaker, trying to get keep them together, that to me is intriguing. Again, I really have no desire to see Judgment Day break up. The best case scenario would probably be McDonough joining, Priest not being thrilled with that, and a storyline in the long-term developing, perhaps even ending with Balor turning on McDonough or vice versa, like four months from now. It's just that Judgment Day is so over that it's tough to imagine wanting to significantly change the group, given how hot it is running. But this completely worked as an intriguing storyline coming out of SummerSlam, and JD attacking Sammy, I believe, was his first entry into earning a spot with the faction. Now, these segments may sound random as part of this main event, but stay with me. First, Raquel Rodriguez was given bad news by the trainer that she's not cleared yet. She was depressed about it, but Candice LeRae and Indy Hartwell were there to console her. Then we had Shinsuke Nakamura versus Bronson Reed. This was early in the show. It was their fourth one-on-one match since late May. But to be fair, the last one they had two weeks ago ended in disqualification, and they termed this as a rematch of that. So that did make sense. Still a little bit repetitive. Reed hit a nice running powerbomb, then countered Kinshasa with a Death Valley driver for a false finish. But Shinsuke avoided Tsunami and hit Kinshasa both to the back and front of Reed's head, for the one, two, three, for a strong pop. I think he did that in their Money in the Bank qualifier. I think it was the same finish. I could be wrong. Nakamura later said he was sick of people getting in his way and that he'd carve his own path going forward. This match right here was a paradigm for my standard criticism of WWE matches not getting enough time. This is what happens when a match is not rushed in seven or eight minutes, but instead gets time to breathe and develop. The crowd went from completely disinterested early to hanging on every single move over the final third of the match. Bronson looked like a beast. Shinsuke got his love from the crowd. It wasn't a particularly remarkable match. I'm not going to grade it, but it was three-star range probably. But it worked to get both guys over. So moving on from this, Rollins and Rhodes later spoke at the same time coming out of a training room. Cody eventually let Seth do the interview himself. He explained that Sammy wants to go for their match, but doctors will not clear him. 
Rollins said it felt like it'd probably be three on one since he doesn't trust Rhodes. Nakamura walks up, willing to team with them. Seth accepted, saying he respects Shinsuke, but Nakamura gave kind of like a wry smile when Rollins walked away. Immediately, it seemed like this would be a full Shinsuke heel turn. And I was pumped at the thought, given they've only had three true one-on-one TV matches in their entire careers, and none of them were actually that good. Also smart to give Zayn a kayfabe injury at the same time as Owens so they can run together in a few weeks. Now, the close-up on Sammy actually seemed to show a legitimate tennis elbow, a burst of sack inflammation, and I could notice that because I've had it, and it hurts like an absolute bitch. Now, he could wrestle with it, definitely, and you can treat it, kind of, but it was inflamed. Now, is that an injury that he needs to be written off for? No, but if they want to give him a few weeks and have Owens take a few weeks for the ribs, they'll be able to return, and it'll make sense. So then we had Rollins, Rhodes, and Nakamura against Judgment Day. This was the main event match. Priest walked in front of the entire faction with Balor giving him a straight death stare, burning holes in the back of his head all the way down the ramp. Then Priest offered a fist bump and Balor eventually did it. Before the bell, Rodriguez completely blindsides Ripley and starts beating her ass on the ramp until officials pull her off. Ripley went after her, but Larray and Hartwell ran down to separate them. So Rhea grabs Candice, ragdolls her. She grabs Indy, ragdolls her into the barricade. They both went back after her. Everyone was eventually separated. Ripley's going wild. At some point, Rhea pulled off her shoe and threw it at Candice. Like, who throws a shoe, really? What are we doing here? It was hysterical. And the whole thing was hot as hell. Like, way, way hotter than I would think a pull-apart brawl with these four would be. It seemingly set up Ripley Rodriguez for payback with Ripley LeRae probably as an in-between feud on Raw the next couple of weeks as Raquel continues to sell the knee injury and get cleared. I absolutely loved this, particularly the way it came out of nowhere. And it was not brief, but extended. And obviously, Candice and Indy being back on TV, that's great as well. This is like the second time in a few weeks where on a really strong edition of Raw, a straight brawl with the women may have been my favorite part of the entire show. Last time, you'll remember, it was when Ripley beat the shit out of Liv Morgan. But here, seeing Rodriguez get over on Ripley and Candice and Indy come out, it popped me. I It rubbed me, folks, the right way. You rub me just right every week. I'm going to have to get that sound drop nailed down because I never remember exactly what he says there. Anyway, back to the match. Nakamura started as the faces argued, and then Dominic started as the heels argued. That was pretty cool, the parallel there. Balor countered a Cody cutter with the sling blade. Rhodes countered his shotgun dropkick with a boot and a Cody cutter. Balor intercepted Rollins' tope suicida with a clothesline. Then Priest drilled Rollins in the back with the briefcase as the referee got distracted. He handed Balor the briefcase, which he accepted. Sammy attacked Damien from out of the crowd. Rollins caught Balor with a super kick through the briefcase. Cody then hit crossroads for the win. I thought, well, so much for the Shinsuke turn. The babyfaces just won. So Cody and Seth, they argued after the bell. Even as the faces were celebrating, Sammy played Peacemaker. He raised both their hands, and Rollins ultimately said, screw it. He shook Rhodes' hand, and those three celebrated on the ropes. Meanwhile, you have Nakamura standing in the corner watching them. As soon as Rollins climbed back down off the ropes, Nakamura runs across the ring, levels him with Kinshasa. The fans boo. The baby faces are shocked. They're screaming at him as he leaves the ring. This was beautifully executed. The match was solid. I kind of hated Balor losing again. It actually made sense because 
It was again Priest giving him the briefcase without asking. So the briefcase came between them, as McDonough said. Plus, Bauer literally just lost on Saturday. So there's really no harm in beating him again. The crowd was hot as hell after the bell. Rollins and Rhodes coming together was smart. It paid off the in-show storyline and allows them to theoretically remain separated. It might even be Cody going against Finn next, giving the finishing sequence. You have a Bullet Club storyline built in right there. I have a feeling they're saving that, but I digress. Sammy gets written off for a few weeks with the injury, and now we have Rollins Nakamura as a great in-between feud for Seth that he can presumably win without much hassle. It was also smart to have Rollins so obsessed with Rhodes that he missed what we as viewers all saw, Nakamura preparing to betray him. This also helps make sense of Shinsuke's booking over the last couple of months, though ideally you would want someone built stronger if they're going after the world heavyweight title, and he's mostly been spinning his wheels. That said, Nakamura actually won two matches on Monday night. Love to see that. And they did plant the seeds of a turn for a while, so that paid off. I just thought it was going to be a turn in the mid-card division. I didn't think it would be in the main event. As I said, these guys have only had three real singles matches in their careers. And while none of them were particularly great, a feud between them should bang. This was probably the most successful Raw main event we've gotten in months. It set up at least three different feuds between men and women, maybe as many as four if Cody Finn is a thing. It was super entertaining, and it took what started as repetitive booking early in the show and turned it into something unique and fresh by the time Raw went off the air. It was an excellent end to an excellent Raw that flew by, and as I said earlier, a huge bounce back from a really controversial SummerSlam. So folks, that was the main event. That means it is time to get into perhaps your favorite segment. I know for some of you it is. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez. I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some... Jordan. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. You know, I actually wonder, because I sing along with this when I play it, and I'm off mic, so I don't want you guys to hear me, you know, rapping. Singing, rapping, clearly is what I'm talking about. I wonder if you all do as well. Like, are do you all know the verse now, or this part of the verse, and do you rap it as I play it with the good, the bad, and the ugly beginning? I'm very curious. DM us or tweet us at Getting Overcast and let me know whether you do or do not. Anyway, uh, let's kick this off with Becky Lynch, who basically opened Hour 2 of Raw with a live mic and a crowd chant. She was excited to finally put an end to the Trish Stratus feud, the greatest of the last generation versus the greatest of this generation and future generations. Zoe Stark interrupted, saying Lynch is scared of her for getting Zoe banned from ringside next week. Becky put over her talent, but said she's been playing second fiddle with Trish dragging her in the wrong direction. Stark's promo, it went a bit long. So Shayna Baszler really bruised up and limping. I think she had a brace on her elbow or one of her arms, huge black eye. She walks down bragging about driving Ronda Rousey out of WWE. Fans chanted, thank you, Shayna. I don't think she was expecting that because there was a weird look on her face, but it was funny. Shayna took exception to Zoe, calling herself the baddest. Becky instigated them into a fight and called out Adam Pearce to make the match, which he did moments later. I found it funny that there was no women's match booked for Raw. So Becky Lynch booked the one women's match for the show, whereas Adam Pearce or Triple H in kayfabe booked zero. I was slightly disappointed only because I thought Lynch was about to do this work shoot promo on the Stratus match getting delayed and pushed off SummerSlam. 
But that said, she completely ran an eight minute featured talking segment in the middle of the show that was a definite good, especially with Shayna getting involved. So we got Baszler against Stark. Lynch literally drank lemonade next to commentary at ringside with Barrett joking that it was sweet with no bitterness at all. Stark hit a nice springboard dropkick early. Zoe escaped Kirafuda clutch and hit a crossbody outside, but Stark distracted herself with Lynch and there was a slight botch before Baszler hit world's baddest slam, which is Rousey's Piper's Pit for the win in 12 minutes. Later backstage, Shayna interrupted a Becky interview saying she didn't need her help and would be coming for the man sooner than later. It was a significant victory for Shayna, continuing her momentum from SummerSlam, but she did not look good doing Piper's Pit. Gotta work on that. Now, Becky with the lemonade was hysterical. For those who don't know, she posted a picture on Instagram with lemons and a blender about turning lemons into lemonade after the Trish match got canceled for SummerSlam. This was a fun, like tongue-in-cheek way for them to acknowledge the frustration on TV without it getting in the way of a storyline, and she clearly had fun doing it. She even got to poke at Triple H because at the end of the match, when Shayna won, she sprayed lemonade out of her mouth, just like Triple H does the water in his entrance. And for those who missed it, Triple H in the post-SummerSlam press conference made a comment about turning lemons into lemonade. Now, what floored me was that the IWC, again, people were like, wow, look at Becky standing up for herself and doing that, you know, slapping Triple H in the face by doing the spit. Folks, They've been working together, like, I mean, I don't want to say decades, but a decade now, right? From NXT to the main roster, they're co-workers. He's her boss. Do you guys really not think that Triple H was aware that the lemonade, all that stuff would be at ringside, and they probably had a laugh about it before the segment began? And then when Becky went through gorilla position and they went to commercial, do you really not think that Triple H had a laugh that she did that, or perhaps even knew that she was doing that beforehand? Like, folks... This isn't some controversial thing. Like, have you ever managed people or had a coworker where you've done something and they weren't happy with you? And then three days later, you're friends again and you're having fun at work and you're going out for lunch or whatever the case might be. Triple H is in a tough spot, okay? He's the chief creative officer or whatever his title is. He has to make decisions that sometimes people aren't gonna like. It doesn't mean you hate them and that you're gonna go shit on them live on television. So I thought it was fun. I liked it a lot. I like it. I like it a lot. And obviously this was good. As far as Baszler going after Lynch, didn't love that. She has some baby face momentum. Rhea Ripley needs a challenger. Now, look, Ripley, we talked about, there's the thing with Raquel Rodriguez and there's the thing perhaps with Candice LeRae and Indy Hartwell. Candice and Indy aren't built up to go challenge for the title. And you don't necessarily want Shayna to lose her momentum to Rhea, but she is a baby face. Ripley's a heel. It would kind of make sense to do that Ideally, you have Becky who continues winning after Trish and you have Shayna who keeps winning. So I don't love the idea of Shayna fighting Becky and either beating Becky or Becky beating her. That's not what we should want out of this. There's no real need to do the feud right away. Maybe this was just like a long-term tease where she's like, hey, eventually we're gonna fight. And if that's the case, fine. Ricochet backstage complained to Adam Pierce about the referee missing Logan Paul's loaded right hand at SummerSlam. Pierce said the decision was final. All he could do was apologize. Then Matt Riddle, Chad Gable, and Tommaso Ciampa walked in with Pierce saying he knows they've all had struggles recently. He was going to try to make it right. He was setting a fatal four-way match for the number one contendership to the Intercontinental Championship. All the faces were about it with Gable reminding the crowd, I'm a hometown guy born and raised at Minnesota. So we had Ricochet, Gable, Riddle, and Ciampa. 
Gable got loud chance early. It was too choreographed at the start for my liking the match. They did a sick triple German suplex off the ropes with Ricochet fully releasing and falling on his shoulder. Gnarly landing. Luckily, it looked like he was okay. Riddle hit Champa with the superplex as Ricochet flew in with a shooting star press and Champa countered a Gable splash for two simultaneous near falls. Riddle hit springboard floating bro on Gable outside only to eat Johnny Gargano's one final beat from Champa inside. He came back with Project Champa on Ricochet. Riddle then hit bro Derek, but Gable flew in to break the fall with a headbutt. Gable tried Chaos Theory on Riddle, but Ricochet interrupted it with recoil. Then he tried Chaos Theory on Ricochet, but Champa interrupted it with a Famouser. And finally, Gable hit Chaos Theory on Champa in full gut wrench fashion for the one, two, three. Like I said earlier, there's a little bit too much choreography and a little bit too much four-man work. In a fatal four-way, you have to have those one-on-one moments. But that doesn't really change the fact that this match was a banger. And I'm giving it four stars and an A-. minus. You can say it's borderline a flat A at 4.25. An obvious good. Gable got to celebrate with his son, who was wearing a singlet just like him at ringside. And it was such smart booking by Triple H to prime us with Gable last week, only to fully deliver it in Minnesota, with his adorable kid, as if we didn't love Gable enough already. Now, my hope is that they delay this until payback and build storylines with Alpha Academy and Imperium over the next couple of weeks, rather than just do Gunther Gable on Raw two weeks from now. But I could see that happening. Either way, it was a huge singles win for Gable that hopefully vaults into legitimacy in this division, even if he continues to work with Alpha Academy as well. Now, Cigar Man at ITGuy26, he wrote in, He wanted to know um, what I thought about Champa taking the fall. Well, look, Ricochet was being protected, and both Champa and Riddle have lost a lot recently. So it didn't really matter which of them lost the match. I know you guys think I'm crazy continuing to talk about Gargano, but if he's on the way back as expected, and I believe that he is, and Champa is going to be moving into the DIY tag team, then another loss here could be a catalyst for that. Also, I did tell you guys not to worry about Riddle in terms of getting buried or anything. Proof positive right here. Tathdak at Tathdak on Twitter. He wrote in as well, and he was one of the few people who actually did the good, bad, or ugly contribution as I requested it. The problem is his DM was literally everything I just said, so we were on the exact same wavelength, so I'm not going to repeat it. I just wanted to acknowledge you for doing as I asked and trying to contribute to the show. We appreciate that. There's also an interesting booking proposition that they can do here. I want to mention this before we move on. So Gunther Gable at payback could work. Drew McIntyre could potentially turn heel and cost Gable the title at that show. That could then lead to a triple threat at Fastlane with Gable pinning McIntyre. So Gunther would get the record. He would stay strong for the world championship picture by not taking the fall. And Gable would get his first singles title. Drew as a heel taking the loss Wouldn't be great, but it wouldn't matter that much. And he could even beat Gable for the title a month or two later. So they could use Gable as the transitional champion with all of those things happening. Gunther gets the record. McIntyre becomes IC champion. Gable gets a run with the title. And McIntyre turns heel. For me, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know that they're doing that booking. It sounds good to me. Another option, obviously, is McIntyre to go against Cody Rhodes. They probably left Drew off TV this week so as not to do two heel turns in one show. There's a built-in storyline with Cody and Drew, both of them leaving WWE to reinvent themselves, then coming back to greater success. The difference is McIntyre 
has already won the WWE title. Rhodes is still seeking it. That could be a storyline leading into the Royal Rumble. So they don't have to do it right now, um, but they could do it right now. That's the point that I'm getting at. Drew does need a feud, though, that he can win. So maybe what I would do is have him go after the IC title, hold that for a while. He eventually loses that, gets into the feud with Cody, and that's the last guy that Cody conquers before he eventually goes after Roman Reigns for the title at WrestleMania 40. I'm just booking the damn territory, folks. It's the Silver King by himself on this show, trying to make it as entertaining as I can. Maxine Dupree was on the phone, excited for Chad Gable. Ludwig Kaiser interrupted to flirt with her, congratulate Gable, and talk shit for Gunther. Kaiser said that she has potential, but some in WWE are simply better than others, comparing himself to the disgusting freak Otis. Maxine slapped him, then Otis got in his face, challenged. So there we go. The larger Alpha Academy Imperium storyline seems to be happening. That's a positive in terms of delaying the match. So we got Otis against Kaiser. Gunther entered the ring and booted Otis in the face during a distraction. Kaiser hit a kick and got the win. He taunted and flirted with Maxine after the bell. Imperium then attacked Otis with Gable making the save and staring down Gunther. This was borderline for me. I was almost at bad territory, but the backstage segment was so good that I'm edging it into good territory, but it was on the border. Uh, The Miz backstage was bothered that he had to wait for a photo shoot because L.A. Knight was there instead. 90 minutes later, Miz came out complaining to the crowd that Knight never introduced himself like a rookie should and that Knight was given priority over him when L.A. obviously interrupted to another massive pop. Knight said they were introduced when he eliminated Miz from the Battle Royal and offered a handshake that Miz denied. Miz said if you strip away all of his success, his charisma, and his hot wife, then you get Knight. He called them a flash in the pan and, quote, an Attitude Era fanboy playing cosplay in my ring. So then he got Tiny Ball's chance from the fans. Knight said he had no problem with Miz and wasn't making it personal, to which Miz obviously flew into one of his great rants about his career and how he takes everything personal because he's been doing it for 20 years and he's overlooked despite all of his successes. Knight said he spent the last 20 years scratching and clawing his way into WWE, watching as WWE bet on the wrong horses, including Miz. He said Miz got a 20-year head start because he's safe and the locker room knew that he could be bullied. Knight said WWE wasn't ready to take a chance on him because he's a dangerous man who doesn't take that kind of shit. It came apart after that, but then they brawled with Knight countering skull crushing finale into blunt force trauma. Then he shook the hand of Miz's lifeless corpse and walked out. So look, this was a blatant violation of the brand split. It would have been nice if Knight mentioned at the start of his promo, hey dude, I was only at Raw for the photo shoot. You mentioned my name, that's why I'm out here. That would give like an excuse to breaking the brand split, you know? Not that hard, but the idea of putting Knight into a feud with a guy who can actually stand up to him with the verbal jousting, that's obviously a good one. You could even say Miz won this promo battle. Forget that you could say it. I'm saying it. Miz won head to head. And it's amazing that after all of these years, he can be such a shit-eating comedic heel and then on a dime turn into electric, untouchable promo. The best promos in wrestling are built out of truth. And that's exactly what both of them did here. No harm in Knight losing one promo battle. He'll win the next one. Knight is the hottest thing in the company. Getting him on both shows, it just makes sense from a business perspective. As I said, it violated the brand split, but I'm certainly not gonna complain about getting LA Knight on Raw. I just wish it finished stronger and was thought out a little bit more, adding the element I mentioned, but it was an exceptional segment. And I think I already gave the grade, but it was good.
The Brawling Brutes fought the OC. Backstage on SmackDown, stemming from the Battle Royal, both groups got into it, with the seconds all fighting as Sheamus and AJ Styles stared at each other. As this match was heating up late, Montez Ford and Angelo Dawkins, both looking dapper in suits, attacked the babyface for a disqualification. There was a botched pounce German suplex, but that was the only flaw. Despite this seemingly being a heel turn, at least that's how I viewed it, the fans cheered a team that they have been wanting to see matter again for months now. Then Bobby Lashley came out really jacked up to see his guys having dominated in the ring. He got Bobby chance. So the fans clearly want all three of these guys to be baby faces, even though this was booked as a heel turn. It's going to be interesting to see whether WWE leans into that or goes against it. But beyond whatever designation they get, I'm curious to see what they name the group and how they're positioned on the card. Starting out in a three-way group feud is interesting. And I'd really love to see them add Bianca Belair to give her some of that edge as well. More than anything, though, it's just great to see the profits refreshed, Lashley fully back, and Dawkins benefiting from putting in the damn work. Happy for him. This was good. Austin Theory fought Cameron Grimes in a non-title match. Theory and Gorilla Position talked shit on Santos Escobar for injuring his idol, Rey Mysterio, obviously. He promised to dedicate his win next week to Rey. Escobar distracted Theory at the bell with Grimes catching the champion with Caven. This would have been a one, two, three, but Theory's foot was bent backwards through the ropes that saved him. He also hit that Spanish crossbody. Michael Cole called it a scoop slam. Come on, Cole. Theory dodged a second Caven, knocked Grimes off the top rope and hit A-Town down for the win. Escobar attacked after the bell with a phantom driver to surprisingly not much of a pop. I like the booking here to basically give Grimes a would-be win only for Theory to luck out. It would have been better if he had been regularly featured on TV leading up to this, so the crowd actually gave a shit about him. Maybe this will help given he absolutely dominated the match offensively. Theory definitely needed a win prior to defending the title, win or lose next week against Escobar. So this was good. It just could have been better if these guys had been on TV and established a little bit more. Grayson Waller effect had Bailey and Eosky guesting. Waller trolled them with a Shotzi voiceover, only for Shotzi to return in her tank, or so we thought. It was a distraction, with Shotzi all leathered out standing behind Bailey in the ring. She turned on a buzzer that sent Bailey running through the crowd. Io was left alone with Zelina Vega emerging from the tank for a match we didn't know was scheduled. But we did get a video reminding us that Zelina and Io fought a couple months ago. The match started during commercial. Io hit a meteora but got distracted on the top rope by Shotzi, who was trying to buzz Bailey's head on the stage. Zelina then powerbombed her off the ropes, hit a code red for the win in three minutes of TV time. Maybe it was five or six minutes at most. This had little crowd energy, and that was understandable because it was another forced Waller effect segment that didn't benefit anyone. Then you had Shotzi returning to little fanfare, not even being given the chance to like get a promo package or two or a vignette ahead of her arrival to actually build this new character. Then you have a random match without great reason. And oh yeah, Ms. Money in the Bank losing again. A loss that we came to learn happened 24 hours before she won the world title. And this is when you again remember what I mentioned earlier, that Triple H may be a far better booker than Vince McMahon. But again, he learned how to book under Vinnie Mac. EO should not have lost this match. Now, I figured the reason for this was they were continuing the Bailey eo split angle but they spent no time going into detail on it. And then at SummerSlam, Bailey not only cleared the road for Io to win the title with the briefcase, but they celebrated together as if they were best friends unaffected by any animosity that has preceded them. So 
while I was glad Shotzi got a big moment and that we have another non-title women's storyline, let's not get it twisted. Those are huge positives. I did not like the execution of it. The match was unnecessary. Waller was completely unnecessary. And Shotzi would have been better served getting actual build to her character instead of this. So I'm actually going to go bad here. I also give credit to Michael Cole, though, because he lost his shit when Shotzi pulled out the buzzer, begging her to cut Bailey's hair. I thought that was hysterical. And lastly, the Viking Raiders got their normal promo package on Raw, challenging anyone to fight them and then get sacrificed to the gods. So the bell rang for the you know, next team to get announced. New Day responded by making their return for the first time since Kofi Kingston's ankle injury when he saved Drew McIntyre from, I don't want to say certain death, but serious injury. Xavier Woods got crushed with the splash early in what looked like it might be the finish. Woods then hit a step through Tornado DDT with Kofi getting the hot tag and hitting a great SOS on Ivar. Kofi then hurricanrana to Eric outside. Ivar had a great knee buckle sell of a super kick. Then Kofi hit him with Trouble in Paradise before Woods hit Limit Break for the win. The guys were hyped backstage saying they were back. They were going to eject positivity into WWE again, win the tag team titles. They had great rapport with Jackie Redman backstage. I somewhat disliked that the Raiders won the Academy feud only to lose immediately to New Day. But this is one of the best tag teams in WWE history. So it's really not that big of a deal. Great to see Kofi back and them wrestling together. Easy, good. And this was a reminder. Look, these tag team titles that KO and Sammy have, it really makes sense to split them up. There's a lot of tag teams on SmackDown and Raw. Triple H has done a really good job revitalizing the tag team division to the point they probably do need to separate these titles. You have the WWE Tag Team Championships and the World Tag Team Championships. Just keep the, the you know the theme going on these things. I wouldn't be surprised once Sammy and KO actually lose these titles if that's when the transition goes down. So that was the good, the bad, and the ugly from the week in WWE. That means we have just one segment left on this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, and that is the last word. So DJ, take the needle and just drop it on the record. What? We gon' have a poppin' in a second. That's why we always save the best cut last to make you scratch and mix for it like fresh cut grass. Same question about good, bad, and ugly. I kind of am curious if you guys rap this as well because you've heard it so many times, you know the words. Let me know. Uh, Adam M., good name, by the way, wrote in via email, Silver King, hope you answer this on the show. While I usually agree with your match ratings, I've always wondered what your letter grade scale looks like and why you give both whenever you discuss matches and pay-per-views. Maybe you can answer in the last word. Happy to answer this. It makes sense for this segment to happen on this show coming out of SummerSlam. I'm not sure I've ever really detailed this on the podcast before, so let me go over the minutia first, how the letter grades relate to the numerical ratings. I'll try to go through this as quick as possible, and then I'll give my explanation after. So A plus is five or 4.75. A is 4.5 or 4.25. A minus is four. 3.75 is B plus. A B is 3.5 or 3.25. B minus is three. C plus 2.75. C is 2.5 or 2.25. C minus is two. D plus is 1.75 or 1.5. D is 1.25. D minus is one and an F is anything less than one. Now, as to why I give ratings and grades, more than anything, these are just meant to help you as listeners better understand my opinion of a match. But everyone's tastes are different, and there's not much separation when it comes to like a quarter of a point in either direction. So the rating is my rating. It's how I perceive the match. I give out very few five stars because to me, that is defined as perfect. I give even fewer five stars plus 
because being beyond perfect is almost impossible. I'm not even sure how many times I've done it. I know I did for Omega Okada 4 and Walter Isla Dragunov 2. But my scale is firm at five stars. That's why I do five stars plus. I'm not going to give 5.25 or 6 or whatever. Now, to be fair, for longtime listeners who remember me from In This Corner and State of Combat, Omega Okada 4, when I first graded that and my grade came out, my rating came out before the other person who primarily does this, I did give that seven stars, but that was before I developed my scale. That now is a five-star plus match, which it definitely is. It's maybe the greatest match of all time. And again, I know for a fact they gave one to Walter Isla Dragunov 2 here, but I don't remember if or how many others I've given the five-star plus. But you're getting into ridiculous territory if you have a scale and it's five stars and then you just add numbers to it. Because all of a sudden, what one day you have a 14.5 star match, it just doesn't make any sense. Now, the letter grade is to assign the match a general categorization. So if something is A+, plus, it doesn't matter whether it's five stars or 4.75 stars to me. I'm saying to you, the listeners, watch this shit immediately. A minus and above is excellent. Make an effort to go see it. The B range, strong work, don't go out of your way. The C range is average, the D range is below average, and F is obviously a complete failure. And then when we do the overall show grades out of 100, we do that because for me, there's a difference between something being a 90 and a 93. Both are A minuses, but a 93 is really close to an A. It was right on the border, whereas a 90 is closer to the B plus. So I do that. So if I say it's an A minus show, you have better context for the letter grade. I do wish I kept a spreadsheet of all of our ratings and grades from our first episode onward. I do try to be consistent with my grading. But remember, these are my opinions. There's no such thing as an objective grade for a wrestling match or for entertainment. If I decide to give a grade or a rating to a movie, that's my rating. Everyone has their own tastes and preferences. My best picture of the year doesn't have to be your best picture of the year. But if I'm telling you something is the best picture, I'm saying you should probably watch this movie. I loved it. Now, for others who do grades, work rate is like 90% of their match rating. For me, it's probably 70 to 75%. Wrestling is about story and entertainment just as much as it is the in-ring work. And despite that, I would say that my ratings historically here have largely been in the same ballpark as anyone else's, whether you look at Cage Match or Dave Meltzer or whomever. But I do think differences show themselves, such as my impatience for pure spot fest with no story, or how I grade women's matches on the same scale as men, and I don't automatically deduct like half a point like someone else does. The ratings and grades, again, they're meant to be supplemental to the analysis, like a punctuation to the point, almost. So I'm glad some of you enjoy them and are curious about the process. I appreciate the question. I thought it was appropriate to do that for today's last word because Chris wasn't on the show and it was a question just to me. So hopefully Adam M, again, great name, I answered your question. We have a huge last word coming next week, one that Chris has been waiting for. And of course, we'll have a huge show next week as well. Once vintage Chris Vanini returns, we will be talking one year of WWE under Triple H in creative. We will talk about the Cody Rhodes American Nightmare documentary. And of course, everything that happens in the coming week across SmackDown and Raw. Between now and then, don't forget to join us on Thursday for our next NXT and AEW episode. On the way out, reminders as always first, that this podcast is all about Defy. So please do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. You can also leave a five-star written review. 
And if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Again, at Getting Overcast on Twitter. And finally, please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do too, because for just five bucks a month, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Like I said, five bucks a month, $50 for the year. You get news posts every week, multiple episodes of bonus audio for your ear holes. And that five or that 50, that supports the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I appreciate all of you listening to this edition of the show. As I said, we will be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel with your next WWE show. Don't forget to listen to the WWE SummerSlam Instant Analysis if you have not heard it already. And don't forget to join us this Thursday for the NXT and AEW episode. At this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.